Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Everyone, welcome to Pit Pass Moto, the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in the motorcycle industry right to you. I'm Dave Sulecki. I'm Dale Spangler. And this week, our guest is Husqvarna factory rally team racer, Skyler Howes. This episode is brought to you by Moto America. Moto America is the home of AMA Superbike and North America's premier motorcycle road racing series with some of the best motorcycle racing on two wheels. Rewatch every round of the 2022 series and catch all the action from each race with the Moto America Live Plus video on demand streaming service. Or visit the Moto America YouTube channel for race highlights and original video content. Look for a complete 2023 schedule coming soon at MotoAmerica.com. And be sure to follow Moto America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for real time series updates. Well, everybody, welcome to episode 142 of Pit Pass Moto. Um, what's happening, Dave? What's going on? How was your weekend last last weekend? For me, riding season, I think, is officially over. We uh, dropped into the upper 40s here over the weekend and with overnight freezing and was lucky enough to get in one last 220-mile ride last Thursday when it was nice 70-degree weather. So, uh, yeah, looks like it's time to get out the winter duds. Well, you were dead on last week. We got a blast of winter here, but uh, it cleared up, and we had probably one of the most beautiful weekends. In fact, we still have it, 70-plus degrees weather, and got some motorcycle time in, and uh, everybody's out riding, a lot of people at the racetracks. So uh, really, I think we got our Indian summer here in Ohio, so uh, one last uh, hurrah before the snow flies, I hope. Yep. So I did did get in a little bit of uh, World Supercross action from this past weekend. The final round, round two slash final round, which is kind of weird to say, but uh, what would you think of the event overall? I'm just kind of curious before we jump in here, like your overall impressions of the the two round series. Well, I'm glad we got to see two rounds. I mean, kind of gives you some idea where this thing is headed and how it's going to settle in. And I'm trying not to be cynical, but I kind of have my doubts. Didn't have the quite the feel that I expected. Some things I was a little concerned about, but uh, some of the action on the track was good. So I think at the end of the day, as I've said before, watching any kind of racing this this time of the season is pretty cool to me. But uh, yeah, we're Monday morning quarterbacks. We can all pick it apart and say what we didn't like. And uh, I'd say overall, the action was great. I had some some uh, sketchy racetracks, some slippery racetracks. Not not a big fan of the format, but uh, you know, like I say, at least we got to see some racing. What do you think, Dale? Yeah, I, there are some things that really kind of stood out to me. Like I thought from round one to round two, they certainly made some improvements overall. And again, not to like, like you said, we're armchair quarterback in this thing. So, you know, we're just observing it from afar. But, you know, being fans our whole lives, I think it's, you know, it's somewhat valid, you know, us being fans of the sport. And uh, but I thought like the 
some of the stuff that really stood out to me, the drone follow cam, like, wow, how cool is that? And it was actually pretty high quality. Uh, but the random cams, I'm going to call those random cams, the ones that they stuck on the swingers and stuff, they still need yeah. to kind of figure that out. Those kind of stunk in my mind. I agree with that. Video quality is not great. Yeah. But the drone thing, like when they were following them on their hot laps, I thought that was super cool. And I'd never really seen that name, a Supercost. So they're thinking differently. It's just going to be putting all the pieces together. But yeah, overall, I thought I thought there was some confusion here and there. And that's, you know, that's to be expected with the new series. But overall, I mean, from what I was reading online, you know, the crowd seemed really into it, although you really couldn't hear that in the, the television coverage. It looked like a huge crowd. People were having a good time saying they had a, you know, super positive experience. But in case you're wondering, though, it is a world championship. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. Yeah. And, and that's, I guess, maybe in the back of my mind, that's the thing I feel. It just doesn't, at that level, doesn't feel quite legit. But I guess we got to give it a chance. It's only two races. It's only their first year. So yep. to be fair, um, you got to wonder uh, how much better it's going to be next year. I thought the three-moto format is still a little bit questionable, too, and I think especially from the rider's perspective. It seemed like they would try and interview racers and they were scrambling to get ready for their next moto because it's, you know, three mains in a row. And so like when when Roxon got a got a flat, which is another subject we'll have to talk about, which is unreal to me, but they're getting flats at the pro level still. But like he was scrambling after he got that flat to get everything ready for the third moto. And then I think he had like a backpack laying against the wall. And so it's just like it seems like it's a little chaotic for the riders and stressful. And my at least that's my kind of impression I got. Yeah. And as a racer who wants to feel that as you're trying to line up and, you know, potentially win that next moto. And as uh, we expected from Roxon, it was kind of, uh, you know, going into the season, I know I had my prediction, um, talk about the action and the, and the results. Um, but, uh, Roxon was kind of the chosen one to win this. And, uh, as it turned out, that's pretty much how it went. Interestingly though, um, Tomac finishes sixth overall in the world. He only raced one event, <laughs> yeah. but he won, but he won three motos. So, uh, I think, uh, Roxon won two out of the, uh, six. Actually so, only one. Was it yeah. one? I thought yeah. he won one. Eh, I guess you're right. I guess won I'm thinking one. he won one in Cardiff. Yeah. But yeah. Savachi. Wow. Savachi was impressive. Man was on fire. It was impressive. And you got to wonder how it would have been if he'd done better at, uh, at Cardiff. So, so talk about that flat tire. I want to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, definitely hits the radar. Yeah, I just I just think it's hilarious, you know. Like just reading different things about it, like they're saying there's could be like nails and stuff in the dirt, and it just kind of blows me away that that at this point, like they're either not running some type of like bib moose type setup, and I've read that they don't run them in Supercross, but something to address it because you know with the championship on the line like that, you know, it just seems like a tough way to go out. And on top of that, I don't know what it was about the track, but there's just people crashing everywhere with these domino effect first turn crashes and guys landing on the bridge sideways and falling off. And, you know, it's pretty chaotic with all yeah. that. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the metal, the metal ramps. I said it uh, when we talked about Cardiff, but uh, there was a guy who was in a in a about a three wide race going over that metal ramp and kind of got offline a little bit. And I was just wondering what would have happened to him had it been a dirt jump to land on. It would have been a lot softer landing. I'm thinking of the Chatapult incident. I don't know if oh, you remember yeah. that. Yep. You know, the only reason Chad survived is he had a soft landing in, on the downside of the dirt. And uh, this poor guy didn't have that to kind of soften his landing. So, yeah, some carnage. I think you're right. Just the, the fast, brief format, the the muscling in the corners, the sketchy track surface, slippery, it looked like to me, same as Cardiff. Um They've got some things to work out because they think that's going to eventually hurt them because you've got teams that have to field riders or 
they are fined or they, you know what I mean? It's it's yeah. just a really strict format that they have to meet. So to have riders injured over silly stuff like that, like metal ramps and takeouts in the first turn in the third moto in the 450 class, we'll talk about that, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, yeah. It's a pretty cool stuff, you know? I mean, that's where the flat tire to me, like that could have been the end of it for Rox. And he kind of got lucky slash, you know, freezy being freezy ends up taking out his, <laughs> I don't think he took him down fully, but he, but he hit his teammate, Justin Brayton. Justin Brayton was certainly not happy about it afterwards. And, you know, he's probably one of the humblest, mellowest guys out there in the paddock. Yeah. And he was not happy about it because I think it cost him some money because he could have won that title too, Justin Brayton. Probably, but here's the thing: going into that third race, when the when the takeout happened, Vince Freezy was in first in points and was poised to take a world championship. So, in a way, you have to wonder: well, why wouldn't he go after the other guys and try to muscle his way? He probably took it too far, yep. as Vince Freeze has been known to do. But uh, he was leading the points going into that third and final moto, and uh, could have had a world championship had things gone differently. But uh, Freezy gonna Freezy. Yep. Or his teammate could have got it. You know, that's the sad part is neither one of them got it when uh, both of them were in contention. And then uh, Freezy ends up third overall because he was tied with points with uh, Savachi, who won two motos. So uh, yep. definitely some interesting outcomes in the in the grand scheme of things in that MX2 or MX1 class, excuse me. Yeah, it's at SX2. Of course, Shane McElrath, you know, wins that, wraps it up over Max Anstey, who honestly, I was most impressed with Max Anstey. Like I, to me, like, I feel like he's going to be one of those sleeper riders going into the AMA Supercross series in 2023. He just seems like he's on it. I think he's going to be a title contender for Firepower Honor when he comes back to the U.S. Yeah, I tend to agree. I, I think he's, he's definitely shown that he's got it. Um, I'm happy for Shane McElrath. Here's a, here's a guy that has tried to resurrect his career several times and this may give him a little push into next season. Who knows? Maybe this leads to a bigger ride for him. I honestly don't know where he's riding next year. I don't know if you do know, but good for Shane. He's a nice guy, and and uh, for him to take that title and actually seal it off with a win in the final moto, I thought that was pretty cool because he, he hadn't won a moto up until that final. Yeah. I've read some rumblings about him possibly, you know, like when he was with the Club MX team, and, you know, I could see there being a possibility of him going back there and ride, ride on a 450 there, but yeah, we'll see. But it seems like he's got to be pretty pretty excited about that. I'm sure it was a pretty big payday winning that World Supercross, despite it being two rounds. And yeah, a guy like him, I feel like it's a shot in the arm for him. Maybe he's had his ups and downs over the last few years and, you know, had a lot of different rides. And so, yeah, good for him. Yeah, I'm happy for him. And how about this? Manufacturer championship goes to Honda, obviously, because they won the uh, the outright title in the 450s and they were in contention in every class. So makes sense that they scored the most points. And team championship goes to Moto Concepts Racing. And I'm sure the pits were pretty tense after that last 450 moto. So uh, I hope they got that sorted out. And uh, Mike Genova has, uh, hasn't really come out and said anything about how things went down, but uh, they did win the team championship. Regardless, as we've talked about, Dave, it's like, you know, more racing is always great when you're a fan. And so, you know, I'm happy to see it happen. And I hope it does, you know, go into 2023. There's talk of six to eight rounds starting in uh, July of 2023. And uh, hopefully it happens and they, you know, it just continues to grow and it's just going to be better for everybody in the sport. Brands get more, you know, options to advertise. Riders get more options for a payday. And so I, I think it's a good thing all the way around. Hopefully it sticks around. Yeah, let's hope so. So speaking of brands in the industry, you got something to say about uh, our favorite American-made V-Twin product. Yeah, I, I thought it was just a, an inter interesting article that I found, you know, last week. And uh, the title says, Harley is rethinking its headquarters as CEO rejects a return to office. 
And I just thought that was an interesting subject. It's something that, of course, you know, with with COVID really came to the forefront, you know, working from home. I don't know if you got to experience it, Dave. For me personally, I'm three years in now working from home. I worked for a year for my previous employer, Tucker Power Sports, from home and then starting my own business, Buzz Media Content. So yeah, a total of three years now I've been working from home. And so that's pretty big, pretty big news when you when you hear a company like Harley Davidson is shuttering, shuttered its headquarters in March of 2020 and hasn't reopened since. The CEO, Joaquin Zeitz, I think that's how you pronounce his name, hopefully I didn't butcher it. He says virtual meetings democratize the workplace. And I and I would have to agree. I feel like you kind of get rid of these sort of hierarchical workplaces where you have the C-suites and their nice plush offices and the rest of the people in their cubicles. And so I think it just sort of eliminates that. So I, I don't know. I just think it's a really interesting subject. I'm curious to know what your take is on that whole subject. Well, let's see. I'm going to counterpoint it because I'm uh, kind of an old school guy. You know, I've always been that go-to-work guy. You know, it's uh, kind of ingrained in my system and kind of the the positions I've been in in my professional life have required my presence yeah. simply because of the interaction with manufacturing and such. But be that as it may. Um, I've been to the Hallow Grounds on Juneau Avenue. I've been to Harley Davidson many times. Used to work with them in my past life at a previous manufacturer. Um, just an amazing place, and the vibe there, the feeling—it's—it's it's very palpable when you go there because of the history. You know, this is the one of the oldest uh, motorcycle manufacturers in the world, and it's just, to hear that they're not going to be there to do that anymore is—I is, guess maybe sad for me in a way. I understand his his thoughts and approach. I just, I think from my side, and, and a lot of the engineers were located in that, in that office. I don't know how that's going to work for them going forward, but uh, apparently they have a plan. But uh, yeah, I guess my heart's broken a little bit just simply because of my <laughs> attachment to the brand and my attachment to working with them in the past. But uh, I find for myself personally, working from home is somewhat of a trap. And I've heard other people say the same thing where it turns into they, they actually work more hours that are uncompensated for and 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 they end up putting in more effort and putting other things aside. So there's two sides to it. Um, I am a Libra, by the way, so I tend to argue <laughs> both sides of arguments. But uh, I would say that uh, it's not for me. I'm a guy who needs to be in the office, whether I'm actually needed to be there or not. But I like that place to go to every day. And it's just part of my DNA, I guess. But uh Good on Harley. I hope uh, I hope they keep it rolling because they're an important brand to the industry and always have been. I think that makes complete sense, especially like in your type of role, that engineering where it's you got to be there hands on. You know, like I was noticing it's uh, this is a stark contrast to, to Tesla's approach, who's the opposite, where they basically are requiring people to work 40 hours a week in the office. And so this is a huge departure for Harley. But like you said, I think it. I think it's imperative that you're there for a hands-on type position like yours, engineering, where you need to be there. You know, that could, I don't see how you can, can do that job really remotely. I tried it briefly; <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, I also think the work from home it works good for like my type of like just marketing type. You know, I think it works really well. Um, it also comes back to personality. You know, like I feel like if you don't have the personality, like if you're one of those people that's kind of gets distracted easily, like for me, like it actually saves me time. Like I work get way more done in less time working from home because I'm, I'm pretty organized that way. But but yeah, I can, I can definitely see where, you know, like you're going to miss some of the buy-in for like Harley Davidson, a, a huge draw for them is just being part of the brand, like working for Nike or something. It's huge thing, something you can put on your resume. And so not being able to go to this storied headquarters now, I think is, yeah, I think that changes how they, they do their hirings. Now, conversely, like I read where, you know, Joaquin's basically saying like, this is allowing us to hire even better talent because it doesn't limit us to living in a certain place. So they can hire from around the world, no problem. So yeah, it's an interesting subject. Uh, 
we'll have to keep track of that and see how it goes with them going forward. Because I have a feeling like I, it might happen, and then maybe they'll reopen something else again. So it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. There's always that possibility where companies kind of have the hangover clear, and then they realize they do need bodies in the building. I know the place I left to come where I am now uh, ended up doing that. They ended up flip-flopping and built all new offices and brought everybody back, and things are back to the way I think they they needed it to be. So uh, I liked Elon Musk's quote, and I'm going to read it, return to the office or pretend to work somewhere else. So uh, <laughs> that's that's the other side of that argument, which says, you know, some people slack off when they're not being watched, and some people are more disciplined, like yourself, who can, you know, dedicate themselves to a task and, and get it done. So you're your own boss, so it's kind of maybe a different situation than working for a company. So a lot of ways you could argue this, but uh, yeah, sad to hear that they're going to close the building because it is historic. And you were dead on about saying about the DNA and the people there. I've met so many of them, and it is a jeans culture all the way up to corporate top. And uh, they they definitely live and breathe the brand top to bottom. And uh, I hope that doesn't change because that's important to their brand is to have that in their DNA. So at the same time, they need to evolve and uh, reach new customers. So they've got that challenge ahead of them, which is kind of unrelated to the subject, but uh, definitely Harley's got their work cut out for them. Definitely. Well, looking forward to our guest, Skylar Howes. Super excited about that. Um, Very timely. Just won a, a rally race over the weekend. So let's move on to our interview with him. like to welcome to Pit Pass Moto World Rally Raid Championship Racer for Factory Husqvarna, Skyler House. Skyler, welcome to the show. How are you today? Yo, I'm doing pretty good. Just uh, recovering from the long week down in Sonora, so quite happy to be home finally. Yeah, so first off, congrats on that. So it just happened this past weekend, the Sonora Rally in Mexico. Red where you said you topped the timesheets every day for a dominant win. I think that was your second win. Dodging Cactuses. Uh, add to that a solo win at the Vegas Torino, and man, you got to be pumped about how your year's been going so far. Yeah, it, I mean, it started off pretty rough, to be honest. I mean, the year always starts off with the Dakar, and that's the biggest race of the year, and that's what everything is geared towards and like based off of. So to have a crash there and to not finish the Dakar was a rough start to the year. And yeah, I had that concussion there, which actually took quite a bit of time to to recover. I thought I was feeling pretty good, and then went and raced Abu Dhabi, the world rally there in the Middle East, and, you know, had a really subpar result there. It was uh, not a strong performance. I just felt super uncomfortable and really exhausted. And a, a lot of stuff kind of, I don't know, followed up to that concussion I had in, in Dakar. So it was pretty tough there and got back to work, got a new trainer and started working with him. His name's Nick Chase. He's one of the top triathletes here in the USA started working with him and getting on a a bit better of a program and just really started buckling down in the off season. And for us, the off season went like pretty long because we were supposed to have the Andalusia rally in the middle of the year that got postponed. So all the way until just recently in Morocco, we've essentially had an off season with uh, the world rounds. So I've had quite a bit of time to like focus in on, on my program a bit. And yeah, I did the silver state 300 uh, earlier, that was just on the the regular 450 Husqvarna, and then yeah, Vegas Torino on the rally bike, uh, Rally du Maroc, now Sonora. So yeah, since the 
since summertime, it's been pretty full gas as far as the racing goes and the training and the preparation and all that kind of stuff. It's been pretty insane. So I'm super happy to now come into a little bit more of a off season. The last two months, we still got trainings and stuff, but it's been, it's been full gas for those last four events and ha- super happy to rack up a win at all four of them. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Let's talk about one. We, we hadn't really talked about it yet, but obviously all that hard work is certainly paying off and like you said it's been a weird couple years with the schedules and you know events being canceled here and there but you got your first fim world rally raid win at the rally du maroc i mean tell us about that i mean that's just has to be such a good feeling after all the work you put in you know two years ago going to the 2021 dakar selling pretty much everything you could just to pay for yourself to get there taking this big gamble you land the husky factory ride and now you're now you're a race winner at a rally raid uh, rally raid world championship. So it's just you got to be feeling good about it. Yeah, I I was feeling really good leading up to the race. We have been putting in an insane amount of work on this new rally bike that we've developed over the last couple of years. And I mean, it hasn't always gone swimmingly. Last year when we unveiled the bike at Morocco, we realized that we still needed to make some pretty hefty changes before Dakar. And even since Dakar, we've made a lot more improvement in development on this thing and we've got it to a point now that it's actually like quite good and what's nice about it is i feel like we can continue to improve and make it even better so after all of this work and being like more in tune with my bike and understanding what changes go where and how to relay that information to the team to make you know, the bike better. It's been a pretty insane process coming from, you know, a privateer where basically have to do more with less and just ride whatever you get your hands on. And that's as good as it's going to get to now being full hands on on the development, the complete development of a motorcycle. And so it's really got me in tune with a lot of that stuff. And we put in a lot of hard work and heading into Morocco, we did like 10 days of we did like quite a few days of photo shoots, but in between that, we were doing testings. We did some more roadbooks for training and all that. So leading up to that race, I was like feeling super positive and really in tune with the bike. And I felt at home really like on the bike and in the terrain, I was just feeling really comfortable. And we even continued to make more adjustments during the race. And the first little small stage we have the prologue, which now they, they, they combine it. So it's one A and one B. So essentially your prologue time gets multiplied. So it goes against your overall time. And the reason why they do that is so they don't have people like, uh, you know, uh, going slow on purpose or trying to play a strategy into it. Like basically have to pin it and try to win the prologue in order to keep your times low. So anyways, going into that, I mean, I'm not a sprint racer. My motocross background is pretty weak. Like I, I grew up just going out to the desert. And so I would say my strengths are super long distance, long days on the bike and fast over a period of time. But the short sprints around like a prologue track is not my strong suit. And leading into it, I was like, all right, well, you know, I'm not in the championship points. I want to win the event. But at the end of the day, like I need to just do my best. And I'm still, even though like I'm kind of viewed as a veteran in, in the rally world now, I'm still relatively new at it the guys that I'm training with or or riding with, they're talking about, Oh yeah, back in this race that I did in like 2012 or this rally. Like when I started in 2009, I was like, Holy cow. Like I've only been doing this for a couple of years now. You know, I, I, I just thought like, all right, I need to hone in on my skills a little bit better. I need to get better at these prologues 
and just feel it out. So every day I'm just going to go as fast as I can and whatever happens, you know, is what it is. So I went in the prologue, didn't really go perfectly. I blew some corners. I kind of rode a little bit sloppy, but I just went full gas. I ended up getting fourth, which put me in the perfect position for the first stage. And these five-day rallies, you really want to do well on stage one, three, and five. That gives you the best overall odds for the for the end result. So going into the first stage, that put me in a perfect position. I got fourth again. And then I think stage two, I got another fourth. And then stage three, I think I got a second. Stage four, I got a sixth, which, I mean, I lost quite a bit of time on stage four because me and Luciano ended up opening that stage. And Luciano, my teammate, uh, Luciano Benavides, he did an incredible job opening. And what that means is like on the bikes, we're the first vehicles on the stage. So there's no tracks to follow. There's no course markings. We're at, we just have, you know, navigation on our handlebars, which is just a compass and an odometer and a piece of paper. So to go full gas and navigate is super difficult. And especially when you're at the front of the pack leading out, there's no tracks to verify that you're going the correct direction. So you really have to make sure you're on your game. And Luciano did an insane job and took me almost all day to catch him, in fact. And I was second place bike. And uh, so he did a really good job for me there. And then leading in the last day, Ricky, the other American, Ricky Brabeck was a minute, like a minute and a half ahead of me. So he won that the previous stage. So he had to open the last stage and I know he's good. I mean, he's, he's got, you know, a handful more years of experience than I do and all of it being factory years. And so he's got a lot of like really good, solid foundation there for navigation and speed and everything. And I've raced against him before and he's opened the stage and I couldn't catch him. And so I was quite nervous and the pressure was really high going into that final stage. And it was shortened. Like we had a lot of transfer sections. So the actual racing time was relatively short and you pretty much had to make all of your time up in the first 90 kilometers. And that first like 20 kilometers of that stage was super, super technical. Like the navigation, there was lots of tracks to choose from. You really had to stay focused on your compass heading and opening the stage. Like you just couldn't do it fast. And I was starting sixth place, so I had five other tracks to kind of verify where I was going. So I didn't have to like stay so, I guess, in depth in the road book. I could just kind of verify that I was going the right way. And I was stressing, like it was a lot of pressure. I'm like, okay, I'm in the hunt. Like I'm pretty confident if I hold it together, I could still get a podium. But to get a world rally win, like this would be insane. I had no pressure from the team or anything like that. They were just like, look, do your best. You know, this is where you have to get it done and good luck type of thing. And so I was sweating it and I went full gas, like everything I possibly had. I had a couple really close calls, just like I looked down to verify on the road book that I was going the right way. And I nailed a couple rocks and it sent me full sideways. And when you go full sideways on the rally bike, it's like, Jesus, take the wheel type of thing. Like you just kind of, you got to hold on and just hope for the best. So I lucked out and and held on to it. And when I got to that kilometer 93, we entered into a neutralization. In the neutralization, there's like split times and things like that. And uh, yeah, on the split times, it looked like uh, I had already caught Ricky. Like when I entered into the speed zone, he was already stopped on the side of the road, like, you know, going to the bathroom or something like that. And, uh, and so I was like, oh, there's no way. I started like 15 minutes behind him. There's no way I already caught him in the first 100 kilometers. But it looks like he had a pretty serious navigation error where he couldn't find a track. We were supposed to go along the edge of this river and then find a trail at the end of it. And he could like, he couldn't find it. Sam Sunderland couldn't find it. So they did some circles there for like 12 minutes. And so I made up all that time on Ricky, put myself in the lead. 
And I was already a minute and a half ahead of anyone else on the stage too. So I was leading the stage. So it was just like this massive relief off my shoulders, like, holy crap, like, all right, I still got like another 60 kilometers of racing that I have to do. So I have to hold it together. But essentially, I almost started crying because I was like, holy crap, this is like my first world rally win. This is going to be insane. So we we started racing that last 60 kilometers. I made one little navigation mistake where I was just, I kind of lost the cap heading and went maybe like two meters to uh, the side of a waypoint, had to turn around and go back and get it. And that lost me the the minute and a half lead. And so I lost the final stage by six seconds, but I still won the overall rally by seven minutes. And it's like kind of those moments, you know, if you win, win something or you accomplish something that you've tried to your whole life, it's not really like real yet. You kind of do it. You, you still got the adrenaline pumping and you're just, you don't know the official time yet. So you don't know for a fact that you've won it. So you're just like sitting there waiting and then, you know, someone comes up and gives you a high five. You're like, ah, congratulations. Like you did it. And you're just like, holy crap. It's the coolest thing in the world. Like it's, it's so hard to even put it into words, like putting in that much hard work, not even just for the last couple of years, but I mean, for my whole time chasing this dream and chasing a dream of like trying to be a factory racer and race at the professional level, like already surpassed a lot of the goals that I even set for myself. So to accomplish something else, that's just a huge, you know, a huge bucket list thing is just the coolest thing in the world. So Oh man, it's just, I'm sitting here staring at the trophy right now too. And it's, I don't know, it's a cool feeling. Gotta be amazing. And to do it like the riders you're naming are, you know, both guys that have won, you know, they're Dakar champions, Ricky Brabeck and, you know, Sam Sunderland. And so for you to be on that level, I would assume you're definitely, you know, you're going to carry that momentum forward into Dakar 2023 this coming January. So I would assume my next question is like, that's probably your focus from here on out and hopefully just kind of keep building to that crescendo where you peak at, uh, this year's Dakar in January. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's no, there's no rest. I mean, obviously you get to like recover and stuff, but I got a program that I have to follow. I mean, I woke up the first thing this morning and I already have my training program laid out for me that I need to do today. And it's a little bit lighter for sure. I mean, just drove 10 hours from Mexico yesterday and got home. Now I have to clean out the van and organize everything, put it all back where it's supposed to and get cleaned up. And, you know, I still got to hit the gym and still got to do my program. So we have a couple more, like three weeks worth of training that we have to do, like roadbook and physical training that the team set up for us. So even my free time isn't really free time. Like it's still, it's still full gas preparation. And yeah, obviously like the main goal is Dakar and to do well there, but the thing that's so difficult about it is it's, you know, everyone competes at a different sport. I don't know, like their biggest game is essentially one day of racing. And we have to have 15 good days of racing. It's hard to put it into perspective because it's like, look, we're traveling 500 miles per day through the desert that nobody's traveled before. And you have to do that at the top of your level at full focus every day for 15 days where you're getting up at three o'clock in the morning and you ride for 10 hours, 12 hours a day, come in, get the shower, stuff your face full of food, you know, go to the riders meeting and then try to get to sleep at a reasonable hour so you can get up again and do it the next day for two weeks straight. And it's difficult because it's like, okay, if you have a bad game or if you have a bad race or something like that, it's like, all right, well, there's next weekend whatever. Like if you have a bad Dakar, you have to wait all year. And essentially all of our deals are based off of this one event. And so like the mental focus has to be insane. And leading up to this in the past, like 
it was always my full focus just to get there and to raise money and to figure out how to just even get there. So my fitness always took a backseat. And I always felt that like that added pressure of like, I know I'm not where I am supposed to be. And I still, you know, was able to hold it together just because, you know, my, my background in the racing and my life and everything I could, you know, the long days and all that kind of stuff work. I, I just like that kind of stuff better, but I always felt, you know, when you have to really push it in the dunes that I'd start getting really tired and fall off the pace a little bit, lose the focus, make a navigation mistake or all that. So now being in a position where I can put a hundred percent of my focus into my training, making sure I'm as healthy as possible. I'm doing everything physically possible, mentally possible to be prepared for this race. Going into the race, I'm much more confident in myself. And I've, I've, I've been able to have some success in racing, but it's always been, you know, I got to go to work, got to make the money to even get to the race, got to be my own mechanic and all that. And essentially in some ways I still am my own mechanic here, but at the world rounds, I got my mechanic, Louie, who's just an incredible dude. He's a machine behind the wrenches. I know that thing's going to hold up and I got the training program behind me. So leading into it, you know, yeah, the confidence is good, but last year I had a really good strategy going and, you know, just hit a big giant compression, a big G out in the dunes. And it took me out stuff like that. Like you, you can't prepare for that. Like that's, that's the hardest thing about the Dakar is there's so many things that can and probably will go wrong. And how do you just minimize that? How do you keep moving forward? Last year I was, I had more pressure on myself just because my first like Dakar as a factory racer, like I have to have a good showing. I want to be able to do this, extend my contract, yada, yada. So I was pretty focused on going full gas every day. And now looking back and looking like how, you know, Morocco went and the consistency and things like that. I think it pays off a little bit better for me. I really feed off of like positivity. A lot of people ride better if they're angry or if they're negative or if they're hyped up. And I feel like I've kind of found my niche in like just being positive, having fun, a little bit less stress and less pressure and things like that. So yeah, going into Morocco and Sonora and everything else, like I've been able to focus a lot more on the navigation and riding fast if I'm just having a good time and, and good vibes and positivity. So I'm trying to just keep that same mentality within my training leading up to it. And in the Dakar, just focus fully on having a good time, enjoying each stage. Cause at the end of the day, like, yeah, we're just, we're there to accomplish something and, and, and win the race. But you know, in life, there's very few people to get to experience this kind of stuff. So I want to have a good positive memory looking back on it. Like, yeah, I enjoyed my time. I've had some success, but no matter what happens at the end of the day, I'm going to look back with a smile and look at this kind of stuff. It's just like, you know, this is such an insane opportunity that I've been able to have and have worked hard for it. I'm proud of it, but no matter what, you know, I'm just going to enjoy the most out of it as possible. We'll get back to the conversation in one moment, but first here's a word from our sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The feeling I get when I watch interviews and I've seen millions of pictures of you where you're never not smiling, you're always upbeat, 
But at the same time, you're kind of a, a thinking man's racer where you're calm, cool, and collected. And I think that's come out of the rally side, I would think, where you have to be. You're kind of forced to be calculating and thinking things through. Where would you say that comes from? Is that uh, just breeding through the series of, of events that lead up to racing at that level? Or is it just your mindset has always been that way? I've had quite a bit of a tough go at a racer. And everyone in their entire life, everyone has issues of their own selves. Everyone has traumatic experiences or, you know, a tough life, you know. So I hate saying that because I have a, I have a great life and I've had it really good. But there's been times where, say, I got involved with people or, you know, made some choices that were just not good and set me down like a path that just made me work harder. I had some pretty dark times that really made me realize who I was kind of as a, as a person and made me realize that it's not about what you can get out of the sport. It's not about what people can give you. It's about what you can do for the sport and what you can inspire or give to other people. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to have these struggles because, you know, when I was 21 and Kurt Caselli signed on to race rally, it wasn't an official word, but it was kind of like a, Hey, you're the top performing KTM behind Kurt. If you go out there and you, you know, do well, there's a possibility that you could potentially get a factory ride and essentially fill his spot within the like American racing series. So I went out there and I was like, God, I got to prove it to everyone that I deserve this. And I broke my back. And then that put me down a path of like, you know, struggle, working hard, making bad decisions that in reality helped me make good decisions now. <clears throat> and so, yeah, there's a lot of things looking back like, oh man, if I would have just done this different, maybe I would have saved myself years and years of hardship. But at the same time, I wouldn't have this mentality now and I wouldn't have this experience if I didn't have those hardships. And I can kind of share that a little bit with other people so they don't have to learn the same way I did. But looking at when I do share that information with people and then they go on and they expect things out of people and whatnot, I'm like, yeah, you know what? Like at some point, like you're going to have to just learn some hard lessons. No matter how much someone can teach you how hot the pan is, sometimes you just have to touch the pan and figure it out. And, uh, I think a lot of that plays into my mentality now because, you know, in rally, if you make a mistake and then it fuels you and you, and you get this rage and you want to, oh, now I have to make the time back up or now I need to go faster and I loot and then you lose the focus or you're not paying attention and you have some crash or you make some navigation mistake or you just make bad decisions. It just is a snowball that keeps getting bigger and bigger. And then all of a sudden your tiny little mistake that you just made becomes a huge mistake. And it could, it could ruin your entire rally. Just one time of losing the focus and getting mad about it and not keeping a level head. And so one thing that's I've kind of adapted over the last little bit is once you've made a mistake, that mistake's been made. There's no going back. The time is lost forever. Like you're not going to make that time back up. And if you think you were, you should have just been going that fast the whole time, or you should have just never made the mistake. Like you have to just be focused on what's ahead of you. If you're so focused on what's happened and you know, all the bad things that happened to you in your past or the mistakes that you've made during that day or in the rally or whatever, like that stuff, you can't go back and change. And I think that's where a lot of my positivity comes and my mindset within rally comes from is just because, 
you know, it, it's weird to say, but I am fortunate enough to have some tough times. And I think that really just plays into all you can do for yourself is focus on the positive future. And I'm not going to think about, you know, what I did wrong and it, let it get me angry because I did that in my first Dakar. And every time I made a, I, I was getting a bad result or something, you know, didn't go my way. I just was beating myself up over it. And I was at the Dakar in Peru getting cheered on by hundreds of thousands of people. And it was just the coolest experience ever. And I had a bad time because I was so focused on what I was doing wrong instead of focusing on having a good time. And then the next year I broke my neck three months before the race. And I went into the race with like, look, I have no training. I'm three months off the bike with a broken neck. I'm out of shape. I'm not ready for this, but I'm, I get to be here. I'm going to have a good time. No matter what happens, I'm just going to enjoy it. And I ended up getting ninth place on a stock bike, which is gnarly. That's hard to do. I broke the bike in half. Like it was, not, it was not set up appropriately. And I, I was able to accomplish something sick. And then the next year I got a better opportunity. I had to work super hard for it. And I went in with the same mentality. You know what? No matter what happens, I'm just going to enjoy my time. And then I got fifth. And that fast tracked me onto like where I am now. And I, you know, I feel like just, oh man, you can have some tough times. You can have some, some tough lessons along the way, but all that should be used for is just fuel to do better the next time. And I think that's where it all comes from. We're happy to see that that's how it developed into where you are today. And with Husqvarna, uh, you've got that opportunity. And I know you touched on this a little bit earlier about developing the bike. Now, I, you did mention at the Silver State 300, you rode the, the standard 450. What is off the showroom as a, as a customer going in to buy the rally bike? What is the major differences between that rally bike and the, the full Enduro 450, let's say? It's a complete different bike actually it's i mean the customer bike that's available right now is still a trellis frame it's still a 450 engine but it's essentially like your exe engine so you have a six-speed transmission you know good power but the specific thing to the rally bike is it has the trellis frame which you know is more of like an adventure frame i guess and then you got over eight gallons of fuel on that thing plus the navigation equipment you know there's there's a lot of different people out there that are trying to make an enduro bike possible to be a rally bike. And it just, it's super hard to do because once you start adding rear tanks and all that weight to it, it throws off the ergonomics and geometry of the bike and all that kind of stuff. And that's essentially a lot of the stuff that we've been developing on the new, new bike that I'm on now. Like I said, lessons that I've learned along this whole process is like, it's not as simple as just throwing on big tanks and throwing a couple spring rates heavier in your suspension and calling it a day. Like the linkage pivot, the flex of the frame, the engine hangers, the offset of the triple clamps, the flex of the triple clamps, you know, all of those things play a huge part into how the bike feels. Like there's so much stuff that goes into it. So someone getting into the sport of rally you essentially can do everything you want, which is throwing, you know, a four and a half gallon tank on the bike, putting a navigation, you know, a road book holder on your handlebars and going out and riding. And that's going to give you the same experience. Like the, the rally bike is purposefully built for the Dakar. I've talked to a handful of other people with it and they're like, oh yeah, you know, I went and raced this rally and it was super technical and rocky and lots of turns and there's these problems with it and all that. And I'm like, yeah, you have to realize when we're developing this bike, we're developing the bike to go and win the Dakar. Like we're, we're developing this bike to go as fast as possible across the desert, through the dunes, 
yeah, we want it to handle good and we want it to turn well and all that kind of stuff. But realistically, like, you know, this bike is purposefully built for the Dakar rally and for the world championship. It's, it's a big difference. I mean, I can ride the rally bike for as long as I do now. And I'll hop on a normal full size, like desert 450 like the Husqvarna, the FX450, and it feels like a mini bike. Like it feels so tiny and it takes me a, a while. It takes me a little bit to adapt back to how different and how small feeling the bike is. And what's funny is Kirk Selly, when he first did, uh, he was doing rallies. He came back and he raced a national hare and hound, like right after, I think it was the Dakar. And, uh, this is one of my like highlights of my moments in my life. Cause it was my first professional race. I was on my KTM 300 and he got the whole shot. I was in second place and I passed him. And, uh, Later on, he ended up stopping and helping like a downed rider and he, you know, didn't get a good finish because of that because he threw away his race to help a fellow competitor. But after that, he was saying, he's like, look, he's a, the, one of the best racers in the world, but going from a rally bike to a 450 feels like you're going from a 450 to an 85. Like it's such a big difference in weight and feel and how the bike feels. It's just like so nervous and twitchy and like nimble underneath you. So it's quite a huge difference. You got to feel like Superman though when you jump on that 450 at uh, 230 pound motorcycle from the from the rally bike. It's got to be a huge huge difference. Yeah, I go and I'm trying to ride a lot more motocross these days and kind of progress my skill there. But it takes me like four or five laps to figure out how to corner again <laughs> and do that kind of stuff because I just feel like a monster on the bike. Well, listen, I want to ask you one last question as we wrap up here. Um, I get a real that there's a sense of community among the rally racers. All you guys know each other well. You know your tendencies and you and uh, even I think it even extends beyond the motorcycle world. But uh, is that true about that uh, group of racers? Is it is a very close group of racers? Yeah, definitely. And it's one of the reasons why I love the sport of rally so much. Like even all of us, well, I guess we're called GP ra uh, riders now, but what was known as the elite class is now the rally GP class. All of us there, like we're super competitive and we're all out there with the same goal and that's to win. But at the end of the day, if there's any issue out there, like we're, we're all we got. Yeah, they do have sa safety helicopters and they are pretty quick to respond, but we are the first people to each other. And so there is that mutual respect between all of us, no matter what. There are, there are a handful of guys out there that maybe are a little bit harder to get along with than the rest of them, but we all are, are pretty tight with everyone. A lot of the other guys, I mean, they've been in the sport for so long. They know each other so well. They're a little bit closer than I am with them. Like I'm, I, I feel like I, I'm good friends with my team, but a lot of these other guys have had so many experiences together. They're just really close. And uh, it doesn't matter which team you're on. You know, no matter what happens out there, if someone has a crash, we're stopping for each other, period. There's no option. There's no way that we're going to go around. If someone needs help, we're going to help them. Like, yeah, if you're physically fine and you have a mechanical area, the helicopter is going to be there in a few minutes and they'll pick you up. But if there's any other type of issue or something out there, it doesn't even have to be an issue. Like even just cruising around in the pits, we're cool with each other. We're going to talk with each other and, you know, that kind of stuff. It's just there's, there's a camaraderie there, even against like stiff competitors that I don't think you'll ever find in any other sport. Like it's, it's, like I said, the reason why I love rally so much is because there is a positivity between everyone. And it, what's hilarious between off-road racers in general is we're, we're covering 500 miles a day and you'd be like, dude, did you hit that one rock behind that one tree in this one wash? And they're like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Stuff like that. That's just hilarious 
and that we can all come to the finish of the stage and talk about all the crazy stuff that we just saw, like the camels he almost hit, whatever, you know, all, whatever it is out there, we can come in. doesn't matter, like I said, which team you're on. We can all talk about it and enjoy our time out there. And it's super fun. It's really, really cool. This is racers being racers for sure. Well, definitely, Skylar, we appreciate your time today, man. Coming uh, and congratulations on Sonora. I know you're hot off the road and uh, taking time to spend with us was awesome. We want to take these last uh, few seconds here. If there's anybody you want to give shout outs to, sponsors and such, and also where we can find you, uh, social media and such. That's that's a long list. There's been so many people that have helped me out along the way. Like when I was fundraising and selling everything to get to Dakar, so many people helped me out in small businesses and all that. And so there's so many people that I could thank and to just wrap it all in, like anyone who has been behind me and consistently gives me positive, you know, uh, or commenting on things and cheering me on and stuff. Thank you guys so much for believing in me and I'm happy to go out there and, and do my best. There's no way I could pay it back to anyone. So it's just thank you guys for, for that help. And I hope that I can do everyone proud. And obviously to my team, Husqvarna Factory Racing for giving me the opportunity to race is is really cool and my friends and family and everyone out there and all the team sponsors and my personal sponsors that help me out it's just insane and the love is cool but i'm doing my best at social media these days to to try and showcase all that kind of stuff and the cool experiences that i get to live so at skylar house 110 is where you can find me on pretty much every single social media platform and yeah try to do my best for everyone there you go, folks. Give them a follow and check them out. And uh, Skylar, thanks again. We appreciate your time on Pit Pass Moto today. Thank you guys for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow Pit Pass Moto on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you have a moment, please rate and review our show. We'd really appreciate it. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and visit pitpassmoto.com where you can check out our blog, listen to past episodes, and purchase your own Pit Pass Moto swag. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thank you to Tommy Boy Halverson and the production team at Wessler Media. I'm Dale Spangler. And I'm Dave Sulecki. See you next week on Pit Pass Moto. Stay ahead of the pack with the latest racing news and interviews from the Hammerdown Racing Report, your source for regional racing action as well as the national scene. Every week, we recap racing action from all around Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan and cover national racing series from the world of outlaws to NASCAR. Plus, get all the latest racing news. Join hosts Scott Hammer and Ron Miller, along with different featured guests each week. From dirt to asphalt, we have you covered. The Hammerdown Racing Report, available weekly on your favorite podcasting platform.